It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 235 for March 27th, 2010. Recorded March 25th. Last December, I shared with you my experience with Adobe's Premiere Elements. Elements is both an amazingly able application considering its price and an application that is surprisingly easy to use. The next step up the ladder is actually a huge step on a giant ladder. Adobe Premiere Pro brings broadcast studio power to your desktop. The price is professional. The system requirements are professional, and the results, if you know what you're doing, will be professional. And there's the rub. I'm not a television production professional. I had some classes in television production at Ohio State in the 1960s. Yes, television did exist in the 1960s. And I produced and directed a couple of industrial videos in the 1980s. But today's video scene has about as much in common with 1980s video as a Lamborghini has in common with a Model A Ford. In the old days, we didn't have videotape recorders in the studio, at least not at Ohio State. If we wanted to record something, and we had to do that when we had a class, we had to depend on the WOSU television staff to roll the tape for us. They were in another building across the river. So I remember times when we proceeded with a video production thinking the tape was rolling, when it wasn't. Cameras were mounted on huge, heavy dollies. They weighed about 300 pounds, and I'm not exaggerating. The control room had no windows, so there was no way to see the studio floor. That seemed a little odd. And I remember discussions like this, me acting as director. Camera two, truck left. Camera two... Truck left. Hello, camera two. Please, truck left. Camera one, would you tell camera two to truck left? A two, truck left. A two, truck left. Well, camera two would then truck left about 30 seconds too late. What I remember most about television from the 1960s is how difficult television was compared to radio. In radio, we could have an idea, write it, voice it, produce it, and have it on the air in just a few minutes. Television production required more people and much more time. But the desktop computer has changed all that, just as it's changed print production, which was another slow process back in the good old days. Between about 1967 and now, I have generally avoided TV production because I considered it to be too much of a drag. With tools such as Adobe Premiere CS5, I may not be able to make that claim very much longer. Things have changed. Tape is no longer the medium of choice for video. Just about anybody can afford equipment that will record high-definition video. And editing no longer requires a $500 per hour production suite and half a dozen highly priced technicians. The desktop computer brings all of this within reach of the average person, and the video components of Adobe CS5 make it possible for anyone to create video that's equal in production value to anything the network producers create. It's not just the tools, of course. They are powerful, but they're not magic. 
You still need to learn about production techniques, master the concepts involved in production, and understand production values. But the average person can do this. Lynda.com offers numerous classes on how to use the tools, including a couple that I highly recommend, Premier Pro CS5 Essential Training by Chad Perkins and Premier Pro CS5 New Features by Jeff Sengstack. Video basics start with understanding the various formats. It used to be that video was video. NTSC standards controlled everything. NTSC stands, by the way, for National Television System Committee. It's a system used in the United States and in Japan. Most television engineers that I've met, though, have referred to NTSC as never twice the same color. The standards were actually developed in 1941, and they're still with us, but high-definition video has been added, and HD brings its own wide array of variations. Here's Chad Perkins describing the smorgasbord that is video standards. One of the things that tends to be confusing for new Premiere users, actually tends to be confusing for a lot of people, is the standards for high-definition video, or in other words, HD video. So let's go over the project panel again and create a new sequence and look at what are the HD standards. Now, if we close up the digital SLR, we have basically the standards in a sense. 480p is kind of like the standard for regular video. Actually, it's 480i. So if we click DVNTSC, open that up, click on standard 48 kilohertz, we could see that there are some standards here, 29.97 frames per second, and it's 720 pixels wide by 480 pixels tall. In other words, horizontal and vertical, what the H and V stand for. And when we talk about size, as far as video goes, we often just use the vertical height in pixels, or in other words, in lines. And so for regular standard definition video, which is 720 by 480, this is referred to often as 480i. It's referred to as i because it refers to interlaced fields. And what that is, they make little horizontal bands, 480 horizontal bands from the footage, and then they interlace them with the next frame. And so this is what they refer to here, fields, lower field first. That means this is interlaced footage. But as we go up to higher definition, we have 480p. And this is not a high definition standard. This is referred to as ED, or enhanced definition. This is not very common. Now, to add to the confusion, because when there were standard definition, there was basically just SD, and that's it. Eventually then came out with widescreen, but that was the same pixel dimensions, just a different pixel aspect ratio. And that's really the only difference there. But the pixel dimensions were the same. And HD has kind of made things a little confusing because there are so many formats. I'm going to close up Digital SLR and actually all these other preset folders as well and open up AVC HD. And herein we find the standard HD formats. We have 720p, and this is 1280 by 720 with a progressive frame rate. Then we have 1080i, which as you can see here is broken up into 25 frames per second, 50 frames per second for PAL, and 30 and 60 frames per second for NTSC. 1080i is 1440 by 1080, but it has interlaced frames. And really true HD is 1920 by 1080 progressive frames. And again, progressive is when those frames are not interlaced and you see the entire frame as a whole. So again, the term HD standard is kind of a misnomer because there are multiple standards for HD. So it can be 1280 by 720 progressive frames, and that is HD. 
and it can be 1080i, and that is HD, and it can be 1080p, and that can be HD as well. When they talk about true HD or full HD, that's usually 1920 by 1080 with progressive frames. That's Chad Perkins from his lynda.com program, Premier Pro CS5 Essential Training. I've mentioned previously that I am not a graphic designer, but I'm fairly good when it comes to avoiding the creation of something ugly. In other words, my designs may not be inspiring or inspired, but they're not abominable. This holds true for my video work, too. I'll never win an award for any of my video work, but I've avoided doing anything outlandishly bad. I try to keep a few rules in mind when it comes to creating workmanlike video. Rule number one, it's video. So show it instead of talking about it. Instead of talking heads, telling the viewer what's going on, show the viewer what's going on and allow the video to support the message. My rule number two, lead with audio. If a train is about to roll into the scene, let's hear the train before we see it. This is a production value that goes back to the early 20th century for films, and it's always been a pillar of television production. Rule number three is very easy to break and quite tempting to break. Rule number three is use dissolve transitions unless you know why something else is better. Three basic options exist for transitions from one scene to another. Cut, dissolve, and fade through black or white. Cuts are quick and signal you haven't moved in time or space. Dissolves and fades indicate a more significant change. And Premiere offers a huge variety of wipes. These are the fancy ones. But it's essential to understand that these should not be used if you can't state in just a few words what message the wipe is intended to deliver. Don't just use one to make it pretty. Rule number four is one that often is ignored. Rule number four is pay attention to the audio, also called Foley. Foley refers to the process of recording sound effects that are added in post-production to enhance the quality of audio for films, television, video, video games, and radio. The name comes from Jack Foley, who started working with Universal Studios in 1914. Movies were silent back then, but as the talkies came in, Foley developed techniques that converted Showboat from a silent movie to a musical. Make sure you have enough live, ambient audio that you can lay in behind the scenes. It makes them much more believable. Rule number five comes with a big explanation. Stop zooming and moving the camera. I'm seasick. Once upon a time, cameras had fixed lenses, so zooming wasn't possible. In the old days, cameras with fixed lenses were mounted on those 300-pound dollies I mentioned. Then came zoom lenses and lighter cameras. Now it's easy to pan, tilt, truck, dolly, pedestal, and zoom simultaneously. It's important to remember that the camera represents the audience's point of view. The audience generally stays put. The movements are important, though, don't get me wrong. Cinematography can use a camera that moves, and the movement plays a considerable role in the emotional language of film images. Techniques range from the most basic movements of panning, which is a horizontal shift in viewpoint from a fixed position, sort of like turning your head side to side, or tilting, that's like a vertical shift in viewpoint from a fixed position, like tipping your head back or forward to look up at the sky or down at your feet. Dollying places the camera on a moving platform, moves it closer or further away from the subject. Tracking, which is also called trucking, puts the camera on that same moving platform but moves it left or right. Craning moves the camera in a vertical position, being able to lift it off the ground as well as swing it side to side from a fixed base. 
and there are all kinds of combinations. And of course, zooming, just using the lens to zoom in or zoom out. Just because you can do these things doesn't mean you should, and it certainly doesn't mean that you should use all of them nonstop. But here's an amusing effect you can try. Use the lens to zoom out as you move the camera closer to the subject, or do the reverse, zoom in as you move the camera back. Try that. Let me know what you think of it. And finally, my little half dozen rules, rule number six, if you're editing to audio, match the beats. Simply put, the process will look more natural if you cut the video on a beat. Undoubtedly, there are good sociological, physiological, and psychological reasons why this works. I don't know any of them, but I do know that it does work. And keep in mind that all of these so-called rules can be broken to accomplish a specific goal. As with most other endeavors in life, learning the rules is part of the process that imparts the knowledge you need to understand when and how the rules can be ignored. You'll find some screenshots from Adobe Premiere Pro on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Video editing can be accomplished on a system with a single monitor, but Premiere has so many control points that you'll enjoy the process more if you use one screen for the various video components and maybe the major control points, the timeline, for example, and use a second monitor for the secondary controls and the informational panels that are needed, but that you don't need to have in your face all the time. When you take a look at those screens, you might want to follow the link back to the December program that I did on Adobe Premiere Elements and compare the screens to see just how different they are. One of the screenshots shows a number of panels. The panel on the left contains resources to be used in the current video. These would be video, audio, titles, and other components that have been imported. To the right of that screen, you see virtual monitors that show the start and end points for a crossfade between two scenes. At the bottom of the screen, the effects browser is on the left, and the sequence timeline covers about two-thirds of the screen, all the way to the right edge. The timeline shows three video channels, and they're matching audio channels. You can add more if you need them. The video channel at the top is the one that's visible unless you turn it off, make it transparent, or mask part of it so that the channels behind it are visible. And then in the upper right-hand corner is your monitor. Another screenshot that I provide for you shows a bunch of overlays, and this is a great example of why you need more than one screen. In this sample, I have the audio mixer up in back. In front, there's a multi-camera view and a reference monitor. The project is part of a training program from lynda.com. Premiere has some built-in titles that you can use to start with and modify to your needs. You just start by selecting the overall title you want, add it to a sequence, and then add, change, or delete the text. As with other video effects, titling should generally be done simply, with a basic sans-serif typeface. And as with the other video effects, Adobe Premiere offers a wide range of text colors and styles, and you can modify them or create your own. And Those are offered for the times when something a bit more flamboyant is called for. If you know why you're doing it, you're doing it for a good reason. The bottom line for Adobe Premiere Pro is five cats. It earns a cautious five cats, but then cats are always fairly cautious, except when they dash about without concern for themselves or your antiques. The caution is this. Premiere Pro is designed for professional video editors who have the time, the interest, 
and the background in understanding how the various bits work. Now, that's not to say this is a secret society. If you're interested, go for it. Anyone can learn how to use Premiere Pro, but it will involve just that, learning. If you're not willing to take the time to master what is a highly complex tool, Premiere Elements is what you need. For more information, visit the Adobe Premiere Pro website or the Premier Elements website. You'll find links to both of them from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Wow, was this ever a surprise. The game of one-upping the competition takes a major leap this coming week. Microsoft has announced that it will release an unexpected new version of its Windows operating system on Friday. Possibly taking a swipe at Apple, Microsoft says the new version will be called Windows Y, deftly sidestepping Windows 8, Windows 9, and Windows X, or 10. The introduction blindsided most technology pundits, including me, because Microsoft's development team worked quietly and secretly under the close direction of well-respected Norwegian programmer Larsip Uldof. In a surprise move, Microsoft announced that Windows Y will be available on new hardware purchased starting at the end of this week. The recommended base configuration is a 64-bit Intel i7 processor, but Microsoft's Uldof says that Windows Y will run acceptably on any system with at least a 386 processor and one megabyte of RAM. It's a little slow that way, Uldof says, but our goal was backwards compatibility so that we could reach the large number of computer users who are still running computers that they purchased in 1989. This seems to be in response to the drubbing Microsoft received for not developing a Windows XP version of Internet Explorer 9, which is also due to be released any day now. For best performance, Windows Y requires 50 gigabytes of RAM, and Microsoft recommends a 5 terabyte hard drive because of the size of the application. Windows Y comes on 17 DVDs. The basic installation consumes nearly 9 gigabytes of disk space. Those who choose to install the World Language Pack will need at least 23 gigabytes of disk space for the operating system, and this could be a problem for the user who tries to install Windows Y on that 386 system with a 20 megabyte hard drive. Uldoff says, though, that disk compression should make it possible to install Windows Y on such a system as long as the user doesn't actually want to install any applications with it. The World Language Pack is a real winner. It's designed to take input from any form of communication, printed, spoken word, radio, television, thought patterns, and so on, and convert them into the user's own language. Microsoft's Steve Ballmer pointed to PC Magazine bench tests using the Windows Y beta version. The tests show that some basic database tasks, when run on i7 processors, can actually run to completion a few seconds before they're started. This is an incredible advance, Balmer said shortly before he began to speak. Apple's Steve Jobs says the name is noteworthy, but, he says, as usual, Microsoft got it backwards. Instead of Windows Y, they should have called it Y Windows. That's what we've been saying at Apple for years. The upgrade is priced at either $12, $29, $352, $871, or $5,673, depending on the version you choose. For more information on Windows Y, be sure to see the Windows Y website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. The TechBiter Worldwide website was unavailable for a few hours during the evening between March 14th and March 15th. 
Now, although you probably won't notice much of a difference, the site's server is located in a new building. The hosting service I've used for many years is Bluehost in Utah, and this move explains why I highly recommend Bluehost to just about anybody who asks about hosting services. The company had announced it was building a new data center, and several days prior to the changeover, I received a message that said construction had been completed on the new data center with advanced temperature control, custom server racks, and dozens of improvements designed to help us provide you with higher quality service. I'm quoting a message from Bluehost. We will be moving all customer servers to the new center over the next few weeks. The message then provided some specific information. The Bluehost system administrators will physically move your server to the new data center between 9 p.m. March 14th and 5 a.m. March 15th Mountain Time during low traffic periods. We will work to ensure you experience as little downtime as possible, and to that end, we will take the opportunity to perform any needed hardware maintenance or upgrades. We expect the process to take one to three hours. Bluehost, which was originally located in Orem, Utah, old-time word perfect fans will recognize the name of that town, says the expansion places all of the hardware adjacent to the support team and system administrators in Provo, Utah. Again, I quote, Our experience has shown that hands-on control over all aspects of your hosting is the best method of ensuring excellence. Bluehost characterizes the changes as a reflection of a continued drive toward security, stability, and reliability. This is simply another example of the reasons that I tell people who are looking for site hosting about Bluehost. You'll find a link to Bluehost near the bottom of most pages on the TechBiter Worldwide website. CEO Matt Heaton cites the data center's network redundancy with four separate physical fiber lines brought into the building through two diverse entrances. He also notes that the HVAC system uses outside air more than seven months per year. Although I've never met Matt, I consider him to be an important business partner. In short circuits, Firefox 4 might already be on your computer. Firefox can update itself automatically, so my Windows systems already have the newly released version 4. The Linux machine also has version 4, but the process was slightly more involved. I'll describe that next week. HTML5 sites are beginning to show up on the Internet, and Firefox 4 handles them with a plum. I've been using the release candidate version for a while, and I can tell you that it's fast and reliable. You could synchronize Firefox settings between two computers before, but you needed to use an add-on to do it. Now that feature is integrated, so you can synchronize bookmarks, preferences, browser state, and passwords between computers, or between a computer and Firefox on your mobile device. Mozilla can host the settings, or you can host them yourself. All of this is optional, of course. If you don't want to sync, don't. And you don't know how tempting it was to say, if you don't want to sink, swim. But of course I'd never do that. Firefox enhances version 3's private browsing features and now has a do not track function. That function is, of course, as you probably suspected, not compatible with Microsoft's similarly named option. Firefox 4 loses the status bar that used to be at the bottom of the browser. This is where the browser used to show an address when you hovered a mouse over a link. Now the address just floats at the bottom of the page when it's needed and disappears when it's not needed. Possibly my favorite new feature is the ability to place tabs at the top of the browser instead of mixing them in with other browser bars. Speaking of browser bars, Symantec's Norton Internet Security Bar doesn't work with Firefox 4, even though the Firefox betas 
and the release candidate have been available for months. I find that annoying, but expected. Larger companies just seem to be too timid to act until somebody pushes them. If you're not already using Firefox 4, you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Although admitting that Google's plan to digitize out-of-print books could be useful to society, U.S. Circuit Court Judge Denny Chin this week ruled against the proposed settlement of a class-action lawsuit by publishers. The suit filed in 2005 seeks to prohibit Google from making out-of-print books available. Chin's ruling said that creation of a universal digital library would benefit many, but that Google had copied and digitized printed works without permission. The proposed settlement would have allowed authors and publishers of -of out-of-print works to opt out of having their works included. A judge at the Federal District Court in Manhattan suggested that parties investigate an opt-in strategy instead. Google announced its plans in 2004. It has already scanned and digitized more than 12 million books that are, although no longer in print, still subject to copyright. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.